the appellate division third department based in Albany is unique among the four appellate division departments for the simple reason of geography. Since it's based in Albany, the capital, it hears the bulk of the cases involving state government and its agencies. It also admits the largest and most diverse class of attorneys each year. Welcome to Meet Your PJ, a production of the New York State Judicial Institute. This series is designed to introduce you to the four presiding justices of the appellate divisions, the courts that have the last word and are really the courts of last resort for most cases in New York, since the Court of Appeals handles only a small percentage of those cases. I'm John Carr, Senior Advisor for Strategic and Technical Communications. Today, we're honored to have as our guest, the Honorable Elizabeth A. Geary, Presiding Justice of the Third Department. Justice Geary grew up in a dairy farm in the hill towns of rural Albany County. She graduated with honors from Alfred University and Albany Law School. She practiced law for a dozen years. She served as a law clerk and a member of the town of New Berlin Planning Board. She was elected and re-elected town justice and elected to the Supreme Court in, in 2006. Two years later, just two years, she was promoted to the appellate division by Governor David Patterson. And on January 1st, 2018, she was named presiding justice by Governor Andrew M. Cuomo. Justice Gary is a commissioner and past co-chair of the Richard C. Fela LGBTQ Commission of the New York Courts. Judge, thank you so much for joining us today. Let's uh, first discuss your background, if, if we could. What do you learn on a dairy farm that's applicable to life in general and perhaps the practice of law? That's so wonderful. Thank you, John, for that, uh, for that intro and starting right there with my um, deepest and fondest roots. Um, oh, my father always said that I would um, be so grateful to have been raised on a family dairy. And, and um, as a teenager, particularly, I found that a very doubtful proposition. Um, <laughs> my friends had this thing called free time and I envied them terribly, you know, but, but the lessons that I learned in that um, uh, cyclic process of um, what, what all agriculture is, you know, the returning to very hard work season after season, but, um, but also seeing the accomplishment, you know, when you have prepared a field for planting or you have done the hay, you know, cut the hay and prepared the hay and stacked the hay in the barn. And, you know, when you've done those tasks, you get a deep feeling of the value of hard work. And that has carried me. And my, and my father, back to my father, he, he loved the farm. And he would say to me, oh, you'll be so grateful. And he's passed now so many years. Um, uh, and uh, he was so right. Uh, John, I, I am so grateful for that background and and all of the attachment that i that i still hold to the natural world you know springs from springs from that and it's and it's predominant in my personal life my um my enjoyment of our um, amazingly beautiful planet and i know i'm going on too long so thank you for but you but you started with a topic that's um so near and dear so thank you john so there must have come a time when you decided you'd rather be a, a judge than a farmer. <laughs> Did I mention the, the really, it, it's such hard physical work. And the, so, so quite literally, there was a time when I um, thought long and hard about, you know, what is the future? And it's so physically demanding. 
you know, every single day. Um, we owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to our nation's um, farmers and, you know, people who work in agriculture of all sorts. And a lot of our population tends to be um, uh, more urban or suburban, of course, but um, uh, the, the work they do is, uh, is just so, so, um, challenging in every way you know most of us we read we watch a weather report you know with some interest oh should i carry an umbrella when i go the you know the few feet from the parking lot to the office it's it's just such a different ex life experience so yeah now your, your department covers an enormous uh and very very diverse part of the state you've got i think 28 counties stretching from kingston to canada You've got medium-sized cities. You've got the state capital. You have some of the most remote, most rural areas of the state. How is that reflected in the type of cases that you review? The thing that I think every single judge and maybe maybe every person who who works at the third department might share, um, John, is that the thing that's so amazing about it is is the scope and the diversity of what comes before us. You know, the, the, the breadth of what we get to grapple with in a very deep way is uh, just stunning. You know, the, the, the learning curve for a new judge on my court is, you know, no matter what, what background and life experience you bring to it, the learning curve is sharp and steep. It's, a, it's really demanding because, because that, that geographic diversity brings such a different array of problems and disputes um, and, and as you say the urban the suburban the rural the and all the types of law that we grapple with so um, the state cases yeah I know we'll get into more depth with some of that so um, but that is um, everything is based on geography John things you know things really everything at its heart is a local as it as it works its way up and as you've said you know we're the mid-level court um, deciding things that have been through a legal process, um, but what we see is is just vast in in its um, basis and and background. Now, while the range of cases that you uh, take is certainly extremely diverse, your court has never been diverse in in, in one particular way through, through no fault of, of your own, of course, until it just. I don't know, just a few years ago when Justice Sharon Aarons was appointed, there'd never been a judge of color. Um, and Justice Aarons came from outside the department. Um, the problem, of course, is that in 27 of those 28 counties, they have never, ever elected a Supreme Court justice of color. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on this? My thoughts in, in, its, in the briefest form, John, it must change. And um, uh, yesterday would have been soon enough. Um, really, that that must change. And and my other thoughts are, as you know, as we tape this, we are we are living in a in a period of tremendous change, which brings tremendous opportunity. There is we are in my rather optimistic, perhaps view, um, we are on the brink of moving in a much more profound way toward realizing the dream of our country you know the the unrealized dream it has never been achieved and 
um, the, the, the real promise and, and got you just, you know, the beating heart of our nation, John, and I, I know that's sweeping rhetoric, but it's so true. The, the, the heart of our nation is the promise of um, fair and just and equal treatment of, of people. And, and we might be in the place right now where that will be coming. It's right around the corner, isn't it? And, and we are not there yet. I mean, as you said, I, I, it just, it, any, any look at the data will show um, that we have not reached a level of equality. Um, representation in our government is a critical value on that path. I have always expressed in regard to the, um, to making that happen, given the given the scenario of um, uh, that you described in your opening remarks, that um, I've always been open to uh, appointments from other departments for the you know for the moment, so that we can reach that as as we currently have. Um, but but really, all sorts of groundwork has to be done within the political structures that exist. You know, getting to be a judge is a political achievement and. Um, it, I call upon the political leaders to make changes in the ways that they evaluate uh, candidates for these these positions. Um, one of the things, as you know, pending, um, the chief judge has an initiative to expand the courts that are um, that are uh, opportunities for advancement to the appellate division, <clears throat> and that is one of the clear benefits of that of her plan is that it will expand the potential pool of people serving in the mid-level appellate courts. So that would, that would instantly make a whole lot more people, uh, a much more diverse group of people eligible for the appellate division. Yes, qualified and, you know, and having the important skills in every, in every, you know, way, but, but coming from a, from a broader swath of, of our society and also in every way. Yeah, background, you know, diversity is across all sorts of um, measures. You know, it's not, not simply race, it's not simply sexual orientation, it's not any single item. It is the, the, the more diverse the group, the more, the more people are represented and the more um, sound the decision-making is process, you know, is. Well, we, we, we certainly see that on your court. You have, you have people from the major cities yes. in, on your court. You have people like you who are from rural areas. Um, you have people on your court really from many, many parts of the region who, who come from with much, much different life experiences. Yes. And that's, that's actually really, that is important. And, and, and frankly, when you look at the, if you were to look at the map, John, the, the 28 county region, um, it's important to me when we fill committee positions as well as the court, you know, to have to have representation from the different areas, you know, to not just have have people serving from one particular region, because no matter no matter what people will have a, you know, what's what's in my backyard you know, perspective. And so getting the, you know, the, the legal system, although it's uniform, there are different ways of approaching things in, in my sixth district than the third and the fourth. And yeah, so all of that, it matters. The one commonality though is that, and by virtue of your location, as I said in my opening remarks, 
is you hear, I, I imagine, the bulk of the cases involve state government. You also admit last year 3,300 new attorneys. Yeah. Those factors make the third department different from any of the other, from the other three. We, um, John, I, I, I don't know if that what your question, but I'm going to jump in and say, we take great pride in both. Um, you know that uh, one, of, one of the people I revere, um, and, and I did a little um, movie uh, uh, segment with him, um, the Honorable Leonard Weiss, uh, and his great quote is that the third department is the crown jewel of the New York State court system. And, and those two factors are, are the both of those things you've, you've so well identified. Are, are things we take great pride in. We do a tremendous admissions program nationally and internationally um, with a very small staff. Let me mention that. <laughs> a very, you know, we, we really, um, we have good hard work and folk who um, make that all happen and I'm grateful to them. And, and then the other, the state government cases are in many ways the, um, the most interesting uh, um, things in my personal view that we get to grapple with. Yes. Wait, how so? How so? They're the ones, you know, I mean, every kind of case, I, as soon as I say that, I think, uh-oh, now did I just discount criminal or family law or, you know, I mean, environmental cases, they're, no. they're, they all have their own, their own um, uh, drama, their own, their own pull, their own, you know, structure of law, which is, which is at its heart what I personally love the best. But the, but the state cases are, um, are deeply interesting because they pose the, um, uh, the, the power of, you know, our societal, uh, it's where you see the, the law of our societal interests and the individual concerns and balancing uh, those two things. That's, you know, so, so in many cases, they're very sensitive cases and um, they are the law in its most, you know, how do we structure our society so that it achieves um, the, the proper ends? So, and it's, they also involve the, um, the balance of the, of the powers. You know, it's where the judiciary really is fulfilling its role as in the checks and balances, if you will. So I should, I should, I would be remiss to not to not bring that forward. That's that's also why those cases are so um, are are so interesting. A lot of them come up in a in an administrative setting, of course. You know, so uh, so that's where we see that separation of powers in action. You know, where it's it's we're well instructed by precedent that we're not to unduly interfere with the executive power. And, you know, so, so some of those cases are a little standoffish, if you will, from a, in a judicial way, um, to, put it, to put it in plain English. But, yeah. One of the things that's always struck me about uh, your court is the number of people that your decisions affect because you're dealing with state government and, and, and policies like that. I mean, you know, like if you're just citing... I don't know, a personal injury case, uh, unless you're making some pronouncement of law, it really affects two, per two parties. Your cases on state government policies may affect millions of people. Thank you. I, thank you for bringing that forward because I, I hadn't expressed that, but of course that's true. Thank you, John. Yes. Now, the, uh, with a pure volume of cases you have, I mean, the Court of Appeals hears 
170, 180 appeals a year. Uh, you, you hear 600, 800 appeals a year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is, there, is there a time and a place for, for your court to really delve into uh, matters of law or is the main focus, let's resolve a dispute and let these people get on with their lives? Oh no, I, I, that would be so, so unfair. Um, uh, what we do is, is we delve in, uh, frankly, in each and every case, you know, we really, <laughs> I think you see that if anyone who reads our cases can see that we delve into matters of law and we give ourselves the opportunity to do that. The, the most complex cases, the cases in which we are, we have diverging opinions necessarily take us longer. Um, and I know the, the lawyers out there, uh, you know, wait, they see, they see other um, more uh, straightforward, if you will, more single issues, more unanimous decisions come down and they're waiting for theirs. But the, the ones that we really are grappling with take us longer because there might be multiple writings exchanged, you know, and that's all happening behind the scenes. So, um, we, we absolutely grapple with the cases before us. Um, uh, all, due, uh, all due respect, the cases tend to, um, you know, it's, it, when I laughed about the Court of Appeals hears fewer, the Court of Appeals, remember, hears the cases that, that we have really struggled with. You know, the ones that are, that are most difficult for us are all that they ever get. <laughs> So, you know, the, the ones that are, that are a more, um, uh, um, I struggle for the right words, but that are a review of was the law correctly applied? You know, was there an error in this presentation? That's a, that's a more simple review process in its way. You might have to read a lot, but, you, but the answer will be, will be clear and those cases will be unanimous. Mm -hmm. The cases where you have opposing values and um, perhaps opposing, you know, differing legal approaches, those are the cases that, that, we'll, that we need to, to work through in that more lengthy process. It is my observation over the decades, and I just want to see if it's yours as well, that the, the third department, in my experience, tends to write more write longer opinions. I mean, they're not long usually, but they're, they're longer than the other departments in general, has more signed opinions. Is that by design, by culture, by tradition, or am I wrong altogether? No, I, 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 I don't, um, uh, I don't do, a, um, I do, I, I focus on the law of our department, so, so I don't do a comparison, but I have heard that that is, that it is true that, that we issue more uh, individually authored decisions, certainly, than, than I believe the other departments do. And fewer of the memo kind of, you know, just reaching mm -hmm. the disposition. Um, and that is a part of our culture, a part of our tradition. And um, it, it's, it's a lot of effort. Um, but, but for anyone who brings a matter to my court, um, our court, you have, you've put such a lot of effort into it that, you know, it's clearly a grave concern. And so um, we try to be, uh, we try to address that in both, both for the people or the parties that are in the dispute 
and the um, and the sake of um, precedent in establishing a body of law. So um, that's why the. On the other hand, brevity is is you know a good value. So we we strive for some brevity um, uh, in our writings and and not not issuing unnecessary dicta, um, but. Uh, um, but beyond that, we want to give a um, a full explanation of the basis for the determination, and um, and we strive to do that in the culture and tradition. Now, how how many judges do you have uh, currently? Ten at the moment. So you're you're short two. two. We we ideally would be a court of twelve, John. That would be. Uh, that would be the the really good number. When I joined the court, and it's been eleven years now, um, uh, we were I was the twelfth judge, but uh, we have not been that fortunate of in uh, through much of my time on the court. And uh, um, ten is ten is um, workable, but when we slip below ten, you'll see us really. Uh, um, Take, we have to take measures to address that uh, that lack of of uh, essential um, staffing. Well, the, the measure that's most noticeable to me is you go to four judge panels. We we resist doing that to the greatest extent possible. It's it's less um, rich for us. Um, all the reasons of diversity that we spoke about before, and you know, the having four colleagues to to weigh in with their opinions we i i can speak i think for every member of my court and clearly say that we prefer the five judge panels in every sure. way um, I'm, I'm sure. so, um but we we do go to four judges we'll go to four judges on occasion also if there's a recusal you know that some a judge must step away and maybe they um see something as they're looking through the record and so maybe it's belated and they realize, oh, I have a connection that might look like I'd be unduly, you know, influenced here. So, you know, any appearance of impropriety, we're very liberal with our recusal policy um, because, you know, we can always pull someone in if necessary um, to review. Our court rules allow for that uh, specifically. Now, with a, a four-judge panel, you are always run the risk of a 2-2 tie. What happens when the court splits? And that is, we have a um, particular court rule that allows us to address that that scenario. And um, what we also <clears throat> instituted was that uh, in the most recent round of within the last year or so, when we had the when we were down to um, nine judges, we. Um, <clears throat> At my request, we would signal at the earliest possible moment when it looked like there would be a divergence of opinion to get that fifth judge in to review you know the the cases as submitted. We also have all of our arguments of course archived available both for the court and the public, mm -hmm. and so they could they could review the only thing that a that a fifth judge would be lacking is the opportunity to actually ask their own questions, but they'd have the full material before them. So uh, so we tried to institute that at the first possible indication that, that it was not going to be a unanimous determination. So, now How are the panels? You, you just said you've got, you, you should have 12, you now have 10. Um, you 
you usually sit in panels of five. How are the how is it decided which judge sits on a panel, and and is there a conscious effort to rotate that to to ensure that the same judges aren't sitting with the same judges all the time? There's a very conscious effort to rotate that. There is a very conscious effort. In any given term, um, I should sit with exactly all of my colleagues at, at at least some point. You know, there should be a, a full intermixing and intermingling of the court in all of its various um, potential patterns. So um, uh, there's a lot of factors that go in. The, the scheduling is a, is a difficult um, logistical issue each and every month <laughs> because you have to take into account um, any particular judge's um, scheduling needs, you know, if they have a particular appointment or, or, or requirements. Um, we have to take into account their standard recusals. You know, each one of the judges has furnished a, a list of, of, you know, law firms or other connections in which it would be inappropriate for us to, mm-hmm. to um, preside and sit. So, so you have to jungle, you know, jumble all of that together and, and come up with various panels. But, but, but they are very deliberately um, uh, ever-changing so that we all get to work with each other. Very. Oh, and I, and I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I was going to say in a very so it's a very random. Um, you know, any litigant will get a a random group of us. So, so on a given afternoon or usually Friday morning, you, your court will hear four, five, six cases. Then what? What's the process from there to a decision? I, I have to clarify that. Um, there's, there's really never a time that we hear four or five or six cases. We, um, uh, and we always hear on any sitting day, um, virtually without exception, um, we hear 15 cases on a day. Now, wow. And there was a time we sometimes will hear 16 cases. You know, there, there are exceptions to that, but we don't hear less than 15. Wow. When I say here, what, and, and, I'm, and I'm joking a little bit with you, John, but when I say here, um, it's, uh, you're referring to the oral arguments, which um, will have uh, presentations of, of argument by, by counsel or, or litigants um, on maybe half of them in, in any given day. But uh, uh, so now I now repeat the question for me, if you will. <laughs> okay. What so, do we do after that? Was that the question? So, you, so you, you hear oral arguments for a few hours. Then what? How do you get from there to the decision? What goes, what goes on behind the scenes? Who decides who's going to write the majority opinion? If there's going to right. be a, how, does that, how does the whole process work from argument to decision? Which is, in my, in my experience, <laughs> quick, frankly. In your experience, it's what? I, Pretty darn quick. You, you, oh, quick, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You, you, it's usually, you, usually. Excuse me, John. Excuse me, Judge. Excuse me, Judge. I'm sorry. Uh, John, you, your, your word's dropping out a little bit there. Yeah, that's why the judge couldn't understand that, because I couldn't either. The half, half of your last sentence. You know, it's just that nothing to do with, I think it's just the bandwidth of the internet or whatever. Okay. You know, just, just drop for a second. Can you re-ask the judge that last question so you can both uh, ask and answer it smoothly? That would be great. Sure, sure. Go ahead. I, one other thing I wanted to ask. I keep hearing a little chime, like a calendar notification. Are you hearing that, or is that on my end? Are you hearing like the little little chime from the, like when you get a notification on your calendar or anything like that? 
Uh, maybe it is. I will make sure my email is. Yeah, close your email if it's open, uh, John. You don't have anything open like that, do you, Judge, on your computer? I don't, I don't believe so. I, okay. I should probably check. Let me, um, let me just go. I had turned my other devices off. But, okay. Uh, yeah, uh, I thought I remember you saying email. that. And one of the problems is I asked like six questions in that last question. Yeah, that was quite a few of them in there. Although I do like the judge's clarification. We'll leave that part, right? We'll leave that where she yeah. said, you know, we actually see 15 and this and so forth. But then your next one right after that, if you could pick mm -hmm. it up right after that. Okay. You ready? Am, I, am I fully back on now? I, I went you, on and yeah. You are, Judge. Yes, you are. Perfect. All right, John, here we go. Ready? Three, two, one. Go ahead. So after hearing the oral arguments, what goes on next? I imagine the case is conference, but what, what is the process from oral argument to a decision? Thank you. That's a, uh, oh, such a fascinating um, uh, period. So um, the thing I, I think I wanna start with is um, one, we do know before we hit the bench who is assigned to any particular case. So um, depending on the assigned judge and, and their manner of practice, they may have already had a significant period of, of engagement with the real particulars that, that really sinking into the nitty gritty. Maybe, maybe not. We hear a lot of cases. So um, uh, for my, from my personal perspective, if I, as long as I hit the bench, we strive to be a hot bench. If I hit the bench with, with a solid understanding of the factual underpinnings, that's good, and now I want the, the lawyers to tell me about the law. Um, but, so we are pre-assigned to the cases, but we have not discussed the cases together in any way. Um, and <clears throat> the exception to that would be um, a very minor, you know, a judge might say, I'm troubled about this, you know, just so you know, I'm troubled about this, you know, one aspect of a, of a case to, to give the assigned judge a, a heads up on that. Um, but, or they might share that with the panel, but we don't have any, any pre-deliberation so that when the lawyers appear for oral argument, we are, that's the first time that we have discussed the case together. Following the argument, we have a robing room discussion. So we have a public discussion with the lawyers and each other um, there on the bench. And then we have the private discussion about um, where do we think, look, I heard you ask this, what are you thinking about that? You know, and, and we have that discussion in a conference immediately after. We then um, will retire ultimately you know, to our individual chambers. We'll talk with our law clerk, we, we process the case, and the, the assigned judge will, will present a draft of a potential statement. Um, we gather together, we, we have informal conversation about that, um, telephone, emails, you know, we, we discuss the potential draft. We gather in, typically, when we're not in this crazy time of history, you know, but, but we'll gather, and now we do it, we do the same thing with these, um, with these virtual tools, but we'll speak together about our concerns. Um, and then ultimately after the conference, we can, if, if it's necessary, we will um, uh, engage in exchanging differing writings. So um, 
was that that was that was a lot so <laughs> and thank you john oh no, no that was very helpful but let's move on to dissents um i, I haven't looked at the numbers but a, a great majority of, of your opinions as all of the appellate divisions are unanimous yes there are dissents what is your view of dissents when, when do you write a dissent every time you don't agree or is there a certain threshold or a certain level where you think you feel a, a dissent is important or necessary? I won't. We collaborate um, relative to um, the writings so that um, it's, it's really quite possible that um, uh, one of my colleagues might put a, put a sentence, a few words, a paragraph that with which I will differ. Um, and that process of discussion that I just described would result in uh, revisions to the writing, you know, so, so that adds to that unanimity. You know, we, it's, we're not necessarily unanimous on the first writing. We might be unanimous on the third or fourth writing. And, and that's a, that's what that process is. Um, so once that's said and done, if there are truly divergent opinions, um, based in conscience, in law, in our sense of justice. And um, those are going to be more apt to be when there's really a difference, not in the presentation, John, because that's an individual author's product, but, but in the disposition, in the real outcome, you know, the, the heart of the case. Then, um, then we write separately. And I... Um, I encourage dissent. It's, uh, um, in my view, the, um, there are two sides to a case. And even though we will, we will often come down um, in the same place on that, be it a reversal or an affirmance, um, uh, if, there's, if there's a place of real departure, um, I don't discourage separate writings on that. It, uh, um, uh, particularly because we are a mid-level court, you know, if, if it's strong enough, it gives the litigants, the parties, the opportunity to, to bring that point forward to the highest court. So, um, <clears throat> so that's, I'm open to that. But on the other hand, by operation of um, the way the law works, there, many of our cases, frankly, have an answer. You know, the, the question posed is, was there an error in the procedure here? And, and in many cases, John, you'll see the answer is no. And, and on the other hand, if there was an error, sometimes it's a, uh, I'd say we issue a fair number of modifications, you know, where we, where we say, well, this was an error, but, but the overall um, outcome was, uh, was proper and correct in accord with the rules. Now you mentioned, uh, um cases that go to the Court of Appeals. There are, of course, a couple of ways of getting there. Uh, one is a couple of dissents from your court. Another, the usual method, I think, is that the Court of Appeals grants leave, but the appellate division can also uh, uh, grant leave. And this chief judge, and uh, pretty much all of them in my memory, have uh, at least uh, on some level discouraged that practice. When do you think it is appropriate for your court to grant leave rather than just let the Court of Appeals decide its own calendar. Yeah, yeah, in um, 
There is sound policy, and and for the third department, there is sound policy in allowing the the Court of Appeals to choose their own calendar. Um, There are good, strong underlying reasons why they are better poised to do that than we are. Um, And so that said, uh, I am continuing in, in what is really a tradition and custom in the third department in that we typically do not grant leave, particularly in civil cases. And the reason for that is that is that the parties can present their request to us. They can then go and present their request to the Court of Appeals. And the court, the, those sound policy reasons are that the Court of Appeals is better um, poised to do a comprehensive overview. It's, it's very common, John, for, for um, the same legal issues to be percolating up in various venues. And... Um, so what the Court of Appeals has the opportunity to see, which we do not as much, is maybe this same legal issue is presented in a case from one of our sister departments, but the issue is more squarely posed. It's maybe better preserved, which allows them to reach it. You know, there are, there are things, and, and maybe, and you know, you see them do this all the time. They may take two or three cases together mm-hmm. and hear and address that issue. And that's, their function and the distinction between between their role as a court of law and our role as a court of a mixed court of fact and law is is really plays into that. On the criminal side, um, it's more you know that's a that's um, a different analysis to some extent because because it's a one um, one court review. So. Um, uh, those we might be more more willing to um, uh, allow or grant leave, and and there it would be an issue of seeing is it a substantial legal issue? You know, is it something that we think the court should grapple with? So, no. but again, people will confuse the the factual and the legal review. You know, and the the to the extent that it's you know clearly the weight of the evidence. A lot of if you look at our criminal docket, you'll see a lot of cases fail to preserve the the some of the critical issues in criminal cases they they come to us unpreserved we'll still do an analysis of all the factual um, issues before us but um, but but there's really nothing there for the court of appeals to to work with so because because the court a court of appeals doesn't have fact-finding jurisdiction exactly yeah yeah now in addition to your judicial responsibilities, you have considerable administrative responsibilities on several different levels. You've got administrative in Albany, you have other local, if 28 counties is local, (laughs) and you're also a member of the administrative board, which includes the other presiding justices and the the chief judge, which has administrative responsibilities statewide. what sort of issues does the administrative board tackle and, and, and how often do you get together? We gather physically, um, not quite monthly, uh, meaning um, uh, 10 times a year. Uh, so, we, so we gather literally together 10 times a year. We meet and discuss somewhat more, more often than that. Um, uh, and there are really two sorts of things. There's the, the formal administrative agenda in which is which is devoted to, you know, rules of perhaps rules of conduct, rules of, you know, court rules, um, those sort of 
those sort of issues. Uh, for instance, we just passed the humanitarian exception, you know, letting, allowing lawyers to assist needy litigants, that, those sort of things, those are rules. But then um, there's also, we communicate together less formally on, um, on an ongoing basis, um, sort of at, as needed because the four appellate divisions are striving to, uh, to work with the consistency, to reach consistency and uniformity to the extent that that's possible. We have different populations and different needs and, you know, um, uh, but, um, but clearly the legal community has, has requested, you know, as, as our world gets smaller, the legal community wants and, and asks for a greater uniformity of, of practice. And so I think in response to that, the, the four PJs have, have been working in a very collaborative fashion, um, in, at least during my tenure. That's, it's, we, we try to make it so that it's it not necessarily all the same, but, but pretty close to. In terms of the rules of, um, we just issued the, uh, the temporary practice orders, you know, to allow mm -hmm. young law grads to, and, and if you were to look at those, you'd see they're, they're almost entirely uniform right across the board. All four departments, the same application. That was the process of, of our, uh, the, the collaboration that I'm describing. I know there was also a concerted effort to make sure the disciplinary processes are the same and that the same conduct that results in a disbarment in Buffalo will result in a disbarment in Albany or, or not. Precisely. The, there, was a, there was a collaboration that preceded my tenure as presiding justice. And, you know, Karen Peters, my predecessor, was heavily involved in trying to, to create um, uniform rules of practice before the appellate divisions, the uniform disciplinary rules. Um, I, so I inherited some of that and have continued in that vein. Um, and uh, the e-filing rules. You know, we, want, we don't want you to have to do things so differently from one department to the other because, because that's the underlying reality is that a lot of lawyers will practice in multiple departments and, sure. and, and that um, what's justice here should be justice there, you know, in following up on, you know, regarding the, the disciplinary um, proceedings. They're not identical, John. Um, they, they operate differently. The, the attorney grievance committee has a different um, manner of operation mm -hmm. uh, in regard to how it's approached, but, but the results shouldn't be grossly disparate. They should, you know, and that's, that's the aim. Mm. Two final fun questions. <laughs> the first one, let's imagine that an attorney is about to argue before the <laughs> first time. What is your advice? What should she do? And what should she by all costs avoid doing? The key and, uh, uh, the key is preparation. It's the key to success in all things is preparation. Um, so knowing the facts and the record is really the, the heart of it because we might ask very, we might ask questions that are not what you were fully anticipating and your ability to describe what happened in the trial scenario that you are look that you're asking us to review, you know, in the procedural history that you're asking us to review, your ability to give a, an answer to that, even though it wasn't briefed, <laughs> is, 
is really critical. The, the thing to avoid, um, uh, the most important word is civility. Uh, the one must be um, civil and professional. This is not a personal business. And the one thing that I'd say every judge of our court, we, we don't scold when we see it. We'll see it sometimes, you know, the, any kind of personal attack, whether it's in the brief or, or heaven forbid, in the courtroom before us, you know, any sort of a, of a disparagement of opposing counsel or the opposing party. It really, you know, we know it's a conflict. Um, our goal is to elevate it to, to a level of um, objective review and, and determination. So that takes a professionalism and civility. So to, to, to function best, that's what we need. That was a very long answer. I apologize for that. But uh, oh, that, was a great, that was great advice and it'll be very helpful to people. So, and finally, the trial judges. What do you wish that they better understood or what should they know about uh, the appellate division and how important is the uh, record on appeal? Oh, the record on appeal is the, is the, the last part is, you know, the, the record on appeal is our, is our, uh, um, it's, it's, it's everything. The most important advice to trial judges, because they can overlook this, is, you know, that they'll have a conference with the lawyers. Some agreement will be made <laughs> and everyone will, will be um, uh, ostensibly on the same page. They go back into the courtroom and if that's not put on the record, it didn't happen, you know, because, right, so, so that's the most, that's, that's very challenging. So, so anything that a trial judge does should be um, at some point put on the record uh, in a meaningful way so that uh, to provide for review. The, the, the advice I'd give, so that's, that's advice one, but the, but the other thing is that don't ever take reversals personally. This is not a, um, we, Every single one of us spent time in trial courtrooms, in trial settings, in a, you know, from a, a broad variety of perspectives, really. We served as lawyers and then as judges, and you know, we know how busy it is. We know how hard it is to, to juggle all the parties in the room, and you've got 20 minutes or half an hour. You know, we, we are not unaware of that. Um, our role is to review and to see that that decisions were made appropriately, um, but it is not a personal. Uh, it's not a personal slight. Um, it's uh, uh, it is part of the process, and um, and and please read the decisions, you know, and then and because we try to to be um, um, instructive and and send. When I write a decision, John, I will include citations, and I do this very deliberately and 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 intentionally. I include citations that will open the window to the 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 primary um, foundations, you know. And that will show sometimes the, the nuance of like a compare, you know, like, well, here, this was a slightly different factual scenario. And look, a different out, you know, that's a, um, so that I, so that you can literally see my cases and read those, read the cases I'm relying on and understand whatever that, that arena um, is in, in its context. So. That's great. Judge, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> 
Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I, I, as you can tell, I like to, to go on about these things. It's really fun to, to think and talk about. Um, and I appreciate the opportunity, John. It was fun for me too. Thank you. Healthy, please.